Hello everyone, it's me Subin. I want to let you know that this this podcast recording was actually was recorded back in November, so it's taken me quite a while. Apologies for that. But here is episode three. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back. You are listening to another episode of the Fist Up Podcast. I'm Chanel and I'm here with our president, Subin Saji. Hello, Subin. Hey everyone, how's it going? Okay, before we kickstart and introduce our guest on today's show, Subin, shall we let everyone know what's been going on in FISSEC and what is yet to come? Yes, I can do. Um, I want to let everyone know how the pumpkin competition went. Uh, Our esteemed judge, Mustafa, has chosen Sam O'Donnell's pumpkin to be the best after calling it a... uh, comparing it to Picasso, which is quite a praise, (laughs) I must say. Uh, We just had the Minecraft Hunger Games as well, and I would like to mention we took the championship, so we are the current champion of the Hunger Games. And and congratulations to uh to our two time winner, Dether Knight is your is your Minecraft name. Congratulations as well. You're gonna get thirty pounds of Uber Eats and some limited edition Fist Sock merch. And next week when this podcast is out, well hopefully by next week, um the IOP sponsored Fistock quiz will be out. And that's gonna be really fun. It'll be on our Discord server and yeah, it'll be Kahoot as well. So that's gonna be exciting. And maybe a special special prize for the best Discord name. Oh, sorry, no, Kahoot name. <laughs> okay, so lots of things coming up in Fistock. I shall look forward to them. Okay, so for today's show, we are joined by another professor from the School of Physics and Astronomy. First years, you may have seen her around in labs. She's a keen and passionate interest in MOI, and that is Professor Penny Gowland. So greetings to you, Penny. How are you today? Okay, thanks very much, and thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Fabulous. Okay, Penny, so would you like to start off by telling our listeners about who you are and what you do? So I'm Penny Gowland. I'm one of the professors in the school. I've been here for a very long time now. And my main research interest is in MRI. And I guess I have to say it's one of the passions of my life. You know, it's an amazing technology. Um, And beyond that, I'm an experimental physicist. So I really love being in the first year lab and um, teaching people about how to handle data. So what specifically, so why specifically medical physics out of all the other branches? Medical physics. So medical physics, when we talk about it, we generally meaning the use of medical, sorry, use of physics to, um, in diagnostic imaging. So x-rays, CT, ultrasound, and of course, the ever wonderful MRI. But there's also um, the use of radiation in treatment planning, so uh, treatment for cancer and indeed for some other diseases where you apply high high energy x-rays or high energy radiation to ablate a a, um, tumour. But it is a bit broader than that. There are other areas of medical physics which we tend not to think about. So there's also um, certainly medical engineers who work on, for instance, designing all, uh, um, uh, um, prosthetic limbs and um, new types of devices for people who are handicapped, cochlear implants, all those sorts of areas, uh, new devices for uh, diabetes, um, insulin pumps. So it's a very broad area. But the, the final area of medical physics, which we tend to think about a bit less still, is the area where you're using physics to understand medicine. And that's a lot of what we do in the MR Centre, in the Speech Medicine Imaging Centre. So we use um, physics to 
um, to, to understand. We, we, sorry, we we study the physics of the body. We study the physiology of the body. Um, you know how the heart rate changes and how that changes the pressure in your brain and, and those sorts of basic physics interactions. Wow, you're you're basically really stuck into this. Uh, so you've you've, <laughs> you've got your hands in sort of all sorts as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the great thing about it. It's very versatile. So one minute you can be looking at designing a technology and working with hardware. The next minute you're thinking about the you know basic biology of a, a physical system, a, a human or um, you know human part of the human body. Well, what's something new about the human body you found out? Well, the thing I'm most passionate about uh, in the human body is the placenta. Um, okay. I've been studying the placenta for a very long while, and I suppose one of the reasons I like studying the placenta is because I can. It's really um, easy to study with MRI. It's very amenable to study mm. with MRI. And the second reason I like studying the placenta is because um, its physics is very interesting. Okay. And of course, also it's a it's a um, transient organ. It only survives for a short time. Obviously, for nine months, the the uh, fetus is in the uterus, and it's key to the human development. So there's lots of reasons to be interested in the placenta. Um, but uh, what we've been doing for a long while is looking at how the blood flows through the placenta. And so recently, I've sort of understood why we have very slow flow through the placenta and why that's optimal for exchanging oxygen to the mother, uh, sorry, from the mother to the fetus, I should say. But the, the really exciting thing we've discovered recently is that the placenta has contractions. Right. So the placenta itself can contract. And the, the most exciting thing about that right now is we don't know why. So that's a whole area of work we need to do, looking using MRI probably to understand how the placenta changes before and after a contraction. Is it to do with sort of flushing out the blood in it or is it to do with reducing the pressure in it? These are things we just don't know. Um, so we've got to work it out. And of course, is it changed in, in pregnancies which are abnormal where the baby's not growing properly? Wow, that's some, a lot Sounds of in-depth stuff. Yeah, really incredible. <laughs> um, and I, didn't, I didn't expect that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, um, I do believe that congratulations are in order for being awarded the 2020 Peter Mansfield Prize there. Oh, thanks very much. It's uh, it was a real um, honour and surprise to get that award. So it was uh, it was lovely, um, and it was particularly lovely to get the, the medal that was named after Peter Mansfield, who I'd worked with in the past. Yeah, how, of course. How was working with Peter Mansfield? How what is he like as a person? Um, he was he was a really uh, lovely person to work for. Um, I've actually been speaking to his wife this week since okay. I got the prize, and you know it, it was clear that he knew us all really well. Which I think sometimes when you work with people, you don't really think that they know you. You know what I mean? Yeah. But he did because the way she talked about to me. And the other thing about Peter Mansford was, well, the most obvious thing about Peter Mansford was his ability to concentrate. I think that's probably um, a mark of you know how he managed to achieve so much. So he would maybe not take an interest in the project at all for some period, and then another period he'd be totally focused on it. And, you you know, you'd go home at night and you'd come back in the morning and he'd done three days or three weeks work overnight to um, solve a problem and tell you what to do next. So he was really, really focused and uh, very driven. But the other thing about him, he was, you know, he's an old school person. And I think one thing I, when I look back now is he had a very strict well, work. I don't know if he had a work-life balance. I'm sure his wife would say he worked at home, but he certainly went home a lot. He had a very right. much sort of um, splitting his day up. So he didn't. He wasn't like he wasn't at work. He definitely was, but he would have gone home for lunch and and had a sort of very sort of strong routine. 
and who tell, tell, used to tell the story of how he made one of his major inventions sitting in the car at the traffic lights in Beeston. Okay. I think that's important to remember, you know, you can't think all the time and that sort of downtime driving home, there's suddenly something pops into your brain. We've all had that. And he so that was that looking back, those are the sort of things about him. He was he was, you know, kind and he was driven he was very high level of concentration, but he also knew how to step back and do other things too. Wow. Seems like an incredible person. And but, yeah. do you think I, you, I know you seem to be really involved in the department and getting things running, especially in, in with the first years. Is especially for this year, a lot of um, staff been working a lot over the summer. Is is there a work life balance, or if you consider work as life, it, what do you what, what's your take? So um, I think we're really lucky. I'm, I'm certainly very lucky in that. You know, I, I really enjoy doing what I do. And the other thing about it is, is it's very very variable. So sitting down and writing a lecture is extremely different to, you know, reading a PhD thesis or doing an experiment. And so to some extent, that stepping out and sitting in the car, looking at the traffic lights, you can get that by just doing something different. So when I'm down in the first year lab, you know, I can be mulling over my brain, my research. So there is that that element that it's always different. But um, I think there's definitely been a bit of stress on staff, but certainly the staff who've had to do the big lecture courses. You know, mm. it takes it's taken people days to write one lecture in this because of the sort of preparation and, and getting used to being recorded and how to record it and making the um, the quizzes up and things like that. I mean, my husband's actually an academic, and <laughs> you might be able to hear him upstairs right. talking to his <laughs> computer right now. Um, so there has been a sort of limited time for people to um, have downtime over the summer. But um, it is a problem, and it's certainly true that we have a bit of a, um, you know, um, work-life balance problem in the Speed of Active Imaging Centre, I think it's true to say. But um, I think we're also aware of that, so hopefully we can um, uh, get get a a grip on it. One thing I would say is I've got children who are now, you know, um, your age or older, but um, when I was younger, I had, used to take time off, obviously, to look after them. I actually went part-time. And one of the wonderful things about the job as well is that it's very flexible. So you can do that, you know, within reason. Work, That's good. not work certain times and then work other times. So how have you been spending your downtime then? What, what, what kind of things do you enjoy doing? Um, well, because I don't, don't do love a lot of it, but uh, I have developed an, uh, um, a liking for gardening this summer, which was a bit of a surprise to mm, me because okay. it wasn't something I did before particularly. I, I enjoyed having a wild garden until this year, but now I've been I've actually got a vegetable patch, so I don't know if that will last next year. We'll have to see. I do play the piano, not very well, but I play it. I enjoy I enjoy playing it more than most people enjoy listening to me, I think. And um, I like reading. When I'm on holiday, I read I see avidly, but when I'm at work, I don't really read much. I don't okay. get time. I should say I'm also a local councillor. So that yeah, I was going to mention. Up. Oh no, because <laughs> yeah, we're going to mention you. Uh, oh, sorry. We're going to welcome, you know, <laughs> Professor Gowland, and, and also at the same time, Councillor Gowland. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that takes up some time as well. Yeah, that's something we want to touch on because I think I've had, I just had a few questions come in from from um, third years uh, asking about your um your politics i guess um how how do you get into politics because there's not many people i know who are a professor and a counselor 
Uh, well, how do I get into politics? I've been involved in politics since I was a student. Um, so I've always been, I'm a member of the Labour Party. I've always been a member of the Labour right. Party. Um, and um, I've always been pretty passionate about issues, but I wasn't particularly active, you know, more than a few bits of leafleting and so on hmm. until my children grew up and had more time because I was so busy at work. But once they grew up and there was sort of a bit of a, I suppose I first a bit of a gap. I didn't feel I could just work 24 hours a day <laughs> to do something yeah. else. So I started to do that. And um, I, I started to get more involved in the party. And then actually, to be honest, I'll be absolutely honest, I became a councillor slightly by mistake because, you know, when it comes to an election, it's good to have people standing in each seat. So you okay. don't always expect to win. And so I stood in a seat that I didn't expect to win. And then I won um, very marginally. It was a very close fight. You know, I'm putting Georgia... Uh, the count in Georgia to um, uh, a close run thing. So it was probably wow. pretty much as close on percentages as Georgia is tonight. Um, but uh, uh, in the end, I won. And um, actually, I've really enjoyed it. I really enjoy the work talking to people and helping residents and, you know, sorting out their whatever their problems are. Um, I, I sort of enjoy the, um, somewhat enjoy the politics of it. You know, there's a bit of political to and fro sometimes i don't enjoy that because it can get a bit unpleasant yeah especially um, on twitter bit, yeah well yeah um yes you may have seen on twitter sorry about that <laughs> 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 i can sometimes uh, be a bit unwise on twitter um but then they also i'm um uh there's the sort of scrutiny side so the true job of a counselor is to scrutinize what the council does which means sort of check that they're following their policies yeah and i found that a bit more um I don't know, difficult, I suppose, <laughs> hard work and maybe uh, harder to achieve anything with. I'm not very good at doing things which don't go anywhere, so um, I haven't got the patience for it. So, but, but I'm getting there with that and learning more about it all the time. I know Nottingham Council has got this pledge to be carbon neutral um, very soon, actually. And I was wondering, what's your take on uh, the ability of humanity to combat climate change within the structure of capitalist production or... Is it, do we need more of a, a socialist approach? Yeah, well, um, my personal view is that we probably do need a more socialist approach. And I think we've seen that with the response to coronavirus, where mm. it's quite clear, you know, a lot of the companies can't um, manage in this sort of scenario. And I think it sort of puts a lie to the idea of capitalism and free markets just being able to solve everything because they can't. And they certainly can't solve climate change. And this isn't a surprise. We've always yeah. had interventionist policies in uh, in our society. It's just always more recently it's been talked about free market capitalism. It never has been like that. So, yes, we'll need intervention. And I guess, you know, it wouldn't be any surprise to say I'm quite relieved about what's happening out in the United States, what seems to be happening in the United States tonight, in that we're likely to be able to hope that America will rejoin the world movement on this. I don't think we've got time to mess around with carbon neutral policies for 2035. I think we need to be aiming for now. We need the sort of Absolutely, national yeah. strategy yeah. that we've shown for COVID to be applied to this. And I just hope that maybe as we come out of COVID, we can turn our attention and energy to this problem. What is, um, what is your prediction on how this lockdown or number two lockdown is going to go? I'm certainly not an expert, and, you know, I'm not the person to ask. Um, uh, it would appear 
that the um, numbers seem to be slightly plateauing at the moment. So um, maybe we're on the sort of coming down side. I'm I'm slightly pessimistic about how well people will will um, will com comply with the lockdown. So hopefully everybody listening to this is complying really well because that's the only way we're going to make it work. I hope that we'll get it down before Christmas so to a level that we can um, start to resume some normal life. But the trouble is, of course, we really need to get it down very low so we can actually mm. maintain a low level because I do think Britain has the opportunity to do that. We are a, an island. We do have a very high-tech society. We can actually do this if we put our, um, attend, you know, put our energies into it, but we'll have to work sort of endlessly at keeping it down low. And to do that, we've got to get it back down low first. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm no expert, really. So I want to touch. Right. Oh, go on. Um, I was going to say, moving on to uh, some more home life stuff. Um, I believe you have some rabbits as <laughs> pets. Um, I never heard about this. <laughs> I saw it. I saw it once in um, in one of our one to one tutor meetings in the, in the background. Um, so I thought, <laughs> do you want to talk about um, what pets you have? I have. Uh, two rabbits and I currently have two running ducks and two chickens so this is quite um, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, fun outputs of uh, lockdown so we've always had rabbits for years and um, uh, they, they run around the garden so uh, about half an hour ago because it was getting dark I had to go and lock them up I had to go and sort of chase them around the garden and make them go into bed so usually they can be a bit sort of cantankerous sometimes and refuse to go we don't know what's good for them because obviously they have to be locked up to keep them away from the foxes. Mm. Uh, I don't really like animals being locked up too much, so it's good we can be lucky enough that we've managed to make the garden rabbit proof so they can run around during the day. And as you said, they do come in the house. If I've got the doors open now, we're in lockdown and we're at home so they can come in. But it's um, really sweet. Well, <laughs> when the weather's good and I've got the doors open. At the moment they're locked out. <laughs> but uh, in the summer I had, I've had i got chickens and uh, one of them was broody and I happened to go to uh, one of the people who was in one of my ward, one of the people in my ward. I went to her house to talk to her about a planning issue and she I happened to mention I had a broody chicken and she had ducks and she said, oh, well, put these duck heads under your chicken and see what happens. Mm. And so without really thinking properly this through, I did that, and of course, four weeks later, I got two ducklings. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> oh, it's so wonderful. I can um, I can provide videos if you want, and certainly photographs. Um, and uh, and they grew incredibly fast. You know, the miracle of nature, the the wonder of life. These little tiny fluffy ducks turned into enormous oh. running ducks within about I don't know uh, two months, probably. Oh, but it was wow. only the middle of June, and they're now fully grown. And um, and I've learned so much about ducks. <laughs> so I think... We've got two ducks in the garden. So now, of course, we're having to fill paddling pools of water all the time, so they can um, so they can swim. They, well, we uh, they have to manage between the weekends, to be honest. Um, yes, yeah, so there's lots to learn about ducks. Uh, unfortunately, they can't. Well, unfortunately for them, I suppose they can't fly. So they're stuck in our garden. So I, and my job for the next few weeks is to do a much bigger pond for them, so they can uh, dive a bit. Because at the moment the pond the pond's a bit shallow. You can um you can take them for a walk around the lake on um Uni Park maybe. I think geese will scare them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if I can get a. That's a good idea actually. I wonder if I can get them a, a lead who can all come out and watch. Can we have a mascot as your duck? Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a mascot. That'd be so fun. Do the do do the rabbits and ducks get along nicely? Um, 
if I put something out like um, an apple core that everybody wants to eat, you know, they will, after they'll, they will, the, the chickens will take it off. The chickens are definitely the most um, assertive and they'll take it off anybody else who's got it. The ducks will just sort of randomly take a peck at the rabbits, but they're not really, I think they're just, it's just out of interest. Mm. Um, so yeah, they will just muddle along. And if the rabbits are locked up in the morning, the ducks have now got an automatic door because they make a noise in the morning. So they stop making a noise. It opens up before anybody, you know, was in the summer, it was making a noise. So it opens up before um, we got up. And if, if they're out and about, they'll go and see the rabbits in the morning, which is quite sweet. They're all sitting looking at them long time. <laughs> but generally, they get on all right, yeah. yeah. Have you ever had a cat or a dog? Um, I used to have a cat when I was little, um, okay. but I'm actually unfortunately quite allergic to them now, so oh. I couldn't really have them in the house. But yeah, I like cats a lot. I like dogs, but I'm a cat person. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I want to touch yeah. on your... Um, your university experience and um how, how was your first year um so i went to uh, ucl so i was from london but actually was in hall in ucl right. um it was um I, for family reasons it was a difficult year so um it was kind of traumatic but i was a year older because i'd spent i hadn't done the right a levels so i'd had to take a year out working so i had a bit more experience of life right i i don't remember being homesick but as I say life you know family life is difficult so it might have been the reason but I think um what I do remember was uh not really knowing what I was meant to be doing and not knowing you know whether I was doing the right thing or whether I was you know a keeping up and I remember lots of people talking very loudly about what they'd done at school and me thinking oh, I hadn't done that yeah. they'd done further maths and stuff like that literally me and then, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh I think um I, you know, and then you realise, well, actually, what people say and what they know is not necessarily the same. Um, or, or I think it's maybe not even what they say, it's what you hear them say, it's what you perceive them saying, it's what you, you pick up what you don't know rather than picking up what you do know Perhaps, or what they've done yeah. the same to you. Um, so there's that sort of stress. Uh, that's what I remember from it. I've, I've actually had a first year approach me and um, wanted uh, ask me for advice because he was quite behind on work and just confused on why, you know, coursework, all this deadlines. Uh, so I think, I think quite a few people resonate um, with first year being so confusing away from home, especially times like these. What would be your sort of advice to give them? Yeah, um, so I think the first thing I'd say is try not to worry, because I think um, a lot of people are very, you know, stressed. That's normal. Um, and and I think it's a bit difficult to say this year because most years I always say to my first years, um, my tutees, that you know when you when you come to university you've got new coursework, you've got a new you know new work I should say, um, you've got a whole of the sort of trying to navigate where you should be, when you should be, what you should be doing. You know, somebody contacted me today, they missed a lab. This happens all the time. Mm. People miss things. You're trying to, to keep all that in your head. You're probably looking after yourself much more than you have, maybe cooking and things like this. And then the other big thing, of course, is you're trying to socialise. And there's all this rubbish about, you know, freshest week is the best week of your life. That's just <laughs> silly. Um, but there's this lot of pressure to feel like oh, I've got to make friends this month. I haven't made any friends by Christmas. I won't make any. I made most of my friends at university um, in the second and third year. I should tell you that now. Right. Um, and, and certainly my second year was the most fun year of my, my well, I enjoyed the third year too, but it definitely you know, got better. And uh, just in terms of being relaxed with people. 
So I think there's a lot of pressure to do lots of different things and, and I think it's exhausting. Now, it's probably slightly different this year because, as I've said to my tutees, you've got a lot more time on your own. So maybe that pressure to socialise has gone because you can't see anybody. Mm, but on yeah. the other hand, you're probably also feeling under pressure because you're not socialising, you feel like you're missing out. Um, and unfortunately, that's possibly slightly true. Um so I think I think the first thing is to give yourself time and you know have time and you just sit and watch watch YouTube videos and you know read a book and be on your own and don't try and talk to people all the time because you don't have to there's plenty of time to meet people um, and I think uh, um, the other thing I'd say is make sure you get outdoors you know it oh yeah definitely definitely yeah a bit like your mum <laughs> I mean I went for a run right before so. yeah exactly and I've actually since we've gone into the second lockdown I've changed my working patterns so I'm working in the evenings much more later so I can actually get out in the daylight for a bit we all need to do that yeah yeah definitely Um, and and in terms of work I think I think the thing I remember being told when I started university I'm sorry for my my tutees are listening and hearing this for the nth time (laughs) but um I was told about revision and this isn't revision in exams it's like just reviewing what you've done during the day so it's due, at, the, at the end of the day, um, just think, what did I do today? So to try and get it in an order. You know, we used to make lecture notes and stuff like this, which is maybe not quite so relevant now, but kind of just trying to put everything into context is probably a useful thing to do because there's so much going on. You've got videos and bits of Moodle, and I think it can be quite hard to have an overall picture of things. So um, making notes and, and having a structure is probably important. That's some really good advice. I think I'll take that some is. of that on as well. <laughs> um, I believe you did your PhD in um, the field of cancer research. That is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, so talk to us about your PhD. How how did that go for you? So um, I was I after I did my so I did my undergraduate degree in astronomy and physics. And I did by the time I was doing it, I knew I wanted to do medical physics. And as I've um, I, I, I sort of couldn't really cope with the astronomy right. orders of magnitude stuff. <laughs> so, uh, but I did the third year project in um, the rainfall in Bangladesh because somebody advised me that data processing would be the right thing to do for medical physics. So that's looking at how the solar cycle affected the rainfall in Bangladesh. And then I went to did an MSc in medical physics at what was the Middlesex Hospital then, which is now UCL or part of UCL. And that, um, I was, you know, didn't know anything about MRI then, it hardly hardly existed. And I remember being shown an MRI scan of a spine, and I just thought, I want to do this. It was just an amazing picture. But the person teaching us at that point said, oh, it takes half an hour, it'll never catch on. And at the the same time as he told me that, at Nottingham, we were collecting images in 100 milliseconds, so, you know, don't always believe your teachers. Yeah. (laughs) But luckily, I had some more lectures on MRI and um, from somebody else uh, who's now at Brighton. And then I went to um, find a PhD, and I was, you know, determined to do MRI. Went to the Institute of Cancer Research to do it, where it was one of the first places in the country you could do it, apart from really Nottingham at that stage. And at that point, I didn't know anything about Nottingham. Um, and um, it was on cancer. Um, mainly, my PhD was on quantitative imaging so that's how to make measurements with MRI applied to cancer and it was one of the earliest considered applications of MRI in cancer it was you know even before MRI was invented just with NMR it suggested it could be used for cancer yeah so I've looked at that um PhD itself 
mega stressful. (laughs) 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 I had no idea what I was doing. And and look back now, and I've said this to people recently, and I look back and I think, I would if somebody said to me, "What are you doing your PhD?" and I'd go, "I don't know, no, no idea, no idea." But I did know. I knew full well it was called, you know, how to make measurements with MRI. I don't know why I didn't. I thought I didn't know, but I did know. But I, I felt the whole way through I had no idea because, of course, with a PhD, you aren't, you don't, you know, you don't know what you're doing. That's the whole point it's, about it's research. So fluid, right? You don't know where yeah. it's going. Um, it's all an open book, and it's for you to, you know, draw on it. But Obviously, you've got supervisors who help you, but it, it, I did find it initially stressful, and I think most people do. But um, uh, I, you know, I, I definitely enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more and more as I went through. It was um, a lot of scanning at night there because I was in the hospital, so I had to scan out of hours. Oh, right. And um, uh, yeah, that was that was uh, my PhD. And then I came to Nottingham because I wanted to work with Peter Mansfield, and I never left. Incredible. Um, you said that um, your husband is also in academia. Is he in the same field as you, or does he work in something else? No, well, close. So I met him um, during my PhD, so at the Royal Marsden. He was working on positron emission tomography, which is PET imaging. So yeah. that's when you ingest, inject an radionuclide and make an image of where it goes, basically. Um, so he's worked in PET whilst I worked in MRI. And for, so the, the lockdown has been a bit unusual for us because it's the first time in um how long well basically 30 years that we've lived together <laughs> for most of that time um, he's been working in london i've been working in nottingham so obviously we've lived together but he spent time in london every week um, um because he couldn't commute every day and um for obviously for lockdown that wasn't possible so he's still here now oh, right. um, and so he's his job was a bit more clinically focused than mine so he's in st thomas's hospital and so until very recently, in fact, he wasn't teaching. He was just doing research and sort of um, uh, this, you know, managing the scanners, so to speak. But now as they've got a more uh, um, more specific undergraduate program in biomedical engineering, he's doing a lot of teaching now. So our jobs in some way have got more similar. I think there's a trend what? here with um, people in academia that they've met their partners in at uni. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think a lot of people do, but not everybody, but quite a lot of people do, I guess. And then it's this famous two-body problem where you're, you know, we were both doing similar jobs, but we couldn't do them in the same city at that point. By the time I came to Nottingham, he wasn't, he'd gone travelling when I went to Nottingham. That was his big mistake. Because <laughs> <laughs> once I got to Nottingham, uh, it was quite hard to leave because it was sort of very much the centre of MRI in the UK at that time. So I wasn't very keen to move um and also i've come from london i love london i really do um love london but you know moving back um particularly once we've got children wasn't really feasible well i see would you ever would you ever contemplate moving back in the future maybe um probably not now because of my involvement in local politics so um as certainly as a councillor i wouldn't leave whilst i was elected councillor you know your community well yeah, that's yeah. You, yeah, you get to know the community well. And the funny thing about being in academia, you're not that in, engaged with the community on the whole. So it's been one of the nice things about being a councillor to get much more involved in it. Um, one of uh, another question that we've got from one of our FISOC um, members, uh, which we had last time for Mark Formholt, is um, what is your favourite cheese, Benny? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
probably cheddar. I don't like any of that sticky, gooey stuff or any of the blue stuff. Can't Stilton, is it? <laughs> no, no, Stilton. don't. I'm not even... I might be... Not might be my adopted home, but I won't eat Stilton. I quite like some of those sort of um, uh, Portuguese cheeses, the hard ones. I can't think of their names, so I'm not a cheese expert. But cheddar, I could live on cheddar. That would be fine with me. Are you um, are you one to have some cheddar with a glass of red? Um, sorry, with a glass of red. No, or beer, just a glass of red. Would you have um, Would you have cheese with a glass of red? Probably cheese on its own. Oh, not okay. Are you much of a fondue person then? I do like fondue. I don't have it very often, but oh. uh, would have it occasionally. Yeah. If, if, if the option is to have fondue, I'd definitely say yes. Have you travelled much, and um, like, what kind of cuisine do you think stood out to you? Um, uh, I love travelling. Um, I tr- I've been so lucky with the job because it gave me opportunities to travel a lot. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll be travelling less in the future, but I, you know, have seen a lot of the world. Um, last year, I happened, and and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I, I absolutely um, have considered the environmental impact of that a lot so as a family we've almost always gone on holiday by train Mm. i have a one place i want to go in my life um which is to well not one place one area which is uh somewhere like um kazakhstan or iran actually i'd really like to go to that area it's my this this, (laughs) on, on this session um, we have been to Georgia, and I think the food there was my favourite food, Georgia. Right. Are you more of like a, like a landscape sort of person, or do you like the hustle of different urban areas? Um, I like both. both. I'm definitely, I'm, I, I'm a Londoner. I like cities. Mm. I like the bustle of urban places. I like walking urban streets all around the world, but I also absolutely love mountains, <laughs> high peaks. Have you climbed a few? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm not. I wouldn't call myself a climber by the, the compared to. I'm sure many people listening are really good rock climbers, but I, I do like rock climbing, and we have done quite a lot of Via Ferratas as a family, risking life and limb. <laughs> I don't even know what Via Ferrata is. It's sort of climbing for people who can't climb, where you have you clip yourself onto a chain, onto a cord up the mountain, and. Um, uh, that's all great until the cold runs out <laughs> on top of the mountain. Then it's not. It's, then it's extremely mm. dangerous. Um, but it's. Uh, I, yeah, I like climbing. All right, wonderful, uh, Professor Penny Galland. It's been an absolute pleasure Thank talking you. to you. Thank you well, so much. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Bye.